Okay, I'm going to go ahead and begin. Well, good morning. Welcome to the Vineyard. Apparently, I'm amplified at the moment. And uh, my name is Kevin Young. I'm part of the teaching team, and we're uh, this is my uh, second Sunday in a row. So I would like to say that it uh, feels better this time, but I can't tell you that. It feels better this time. It sort of feels the same. Um, but I, I am... Uh, I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to teach from Hebrews, and I think today, actually, we're going to get something pretty powerful for us in terms of understanding who Jesus is and understanding what he's done for us and understanding how we can approach him uh, as we try to make our way through life. So you will remember uh, that we're in the middle of a study on the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews were Jews, so these were people of the Jewish faith that had become followers of Jesus. And so, you know, you've got a religion, your Jewish religion, you've got all your practices, you've got going to temple, you have the sacrificial system, you have all the festivals and the celebrations and things. And then along comes the, uh, the one that they believe is the, is the Messiah, the one, the long-promised Messiah, Jesus. And they become followers of Jesus. And they have to learn a lot of new things about following Jesus because this Messiah, Jesus, isn't necessarily exactly like what they had envisioned and uh, probably as many different uh, types of Jewish people as there are as many different ideas of what Messiah coming would mean and so book of Hebrews really is addressing who is Jesus what has he done how is he different from how is he better than any of the expectations that they had Um, the theme of the study is Jesus is better than so that's just kind of keep that in mind as we make our way through week by week the different chapters in Hebrews. Um, in previous weeks, we've talked about how Jesus is better than angels. We've talked about he's better than Moses. Last week, we talked a bit about uh, he's better than the priesthood, the Old Testament priesthood, and the sacrificial system that the priests practiced in order to help the people get into right relationship with God. And today, we're going to go into that in greater depth and kind of understand more how Jesus is that perfect high priest for us. I talked about kind of three big ideas last week. One idea, and I have to say, Joy, you did a great job picking songs today that really conveyed, tied into the theme. But one idea is that God is awesome. God is majestic. The God who created everything that we know that exists, that God is so different from us. He's so unlike us. He's holy. He's set apart. He's majestic. He's awesome. And we even looked at some passages that say it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of that God. He's a consuming fire. He's a devouring fire. So we have this one idea that God is very different than us. And if we have this idea that he's lovable and huggable, we have the wrong idea about him. And then the second idea is that we as people... And we looked at this passage at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 6. We're people who are described as having filthy lips, right? We're basically sinful people. We're, we're wicked people. And we, are, we hang out with people just like that, right? We say things we shouldn't say. We think things we shouldn't think. We do things we shouldn't do. And we know that about us if we're honest, right? If we're sort of a little self-deceived, maybe we think, well, we're, you know, but we're not that bad. We're better than others, right? But if we're honest with ourselves, we're not in a position where we would want to be in the presence of a God like that. That would be something that we would be very ill-prepared to do, and we wouldn't be able to stand it. And so that was kind of the second idea. We have this problem, this problem of the way we are, the kind of people that we are, and this God who is not like us. 
and who is perfect and who demands perfection and expects perfection. And so that third idea was that Jesus is that someone that we need in between us and God, right? It's that idea of someone that can be there, who belongs there. He's perfect. He's divine. But he also can relate to us and understand us. And so he's that sort of perfect bridge between a holy God that we really can't understand very well and sinful people that want to connect with God but aren't able to do so. Jesus is that perfect person to have in between. So because he's our great high priest, right? because he's this one that stands between us and God and enables us to come, we're told in the uh, end of the passage we looked at last week to come boldly before the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So the response to having Jesus as the one who is in between us and the living God the one who makes God accessible to us, is to come before him, right? It doesn't say come timidly. It doesn't say come occasionally. It says come boldly before the throne of our gracious God. What I just shortened to, the throne of grace. Just come to that place. And you'll remember that we talked about, you know, there's this idea of truth, these facts that we understand. And all of you who've been to church before and have opened the Bible and have listened to messages and have read things, You have this truth that you can recite if somebody asks, ways that you would explain things, and there's nothing wrong with that truth. But you want truth to be real, right? So that when you're in that time of pressure, that time of challenge, that time of struggle, those words, you know, don't seem maybe as real as they need to seem. So this idea is how can we get that truth to become more real? How can we get the picture of coming before God's throne of grace real in our minds because if we can picture that if we can understand that we can actually sort of in our mind's eye go before him and see ourselves before Jesus seated on the throne at the right hand of the majestic God we can be in that place and that's a great place for us to be it's a great place for us to uh, go for prayer just to sit with him and to talk to him about life what's happening with us right the things that we're struggling with to give him thanks for the things that he does the more we can get that mental picture, and I talked about a book called Seeing is Believing that uh, goes into a great detail about this church tradition called cataphatic prayer or imaginative prayer, but it's basically engaging your mind, your imagination in understanding truth. Right? So it's not just having facts that you can recite. It's actually having kind of a working picture of that truth in your mind. And so those of you who are here, remember I, I told you the story about getting bit by a dog when I was a kid. And, you know, that's a thing I lived with. It's an experience I had, and it's in my DNA, and I, I didn't die. I survived, right? I know things. And I, I was telling a story about this Siberian husky that came to the house, and I, I thought it was a wolf. I thought it was a wolf. That was my fear response. I was terrified of that thing. And then I thought, well, we don't have wolves in San Antonio, I think. I think that's truth I know. Well, maybe it's a coyote. Well, that's a big coyote. You know, well, that's not a coyote. And eventually my brain came around to it's a Siberian husky. Somebody's pet's gotten out, and it was very friendly. And so, But, you know, what I saw was that experience from a kid, that sort of visceral reaction to this is my reality. And it's that kind of an idea, right, that 
Jesus is seated on the throne. These are not words that are told to us just so we can have an abstract idea, but picture Jesus seated on the throne. So if there's one thing I'd like you to do today as I continue with this message, it's keep your mind engaged and picture the things I'm talking about. And I hopefully will give you a few, th- a few things to help you engage uh, your imagination a bit more. But if you can get this idea, this picture that God is accessible, that Jesus is the one, that he's there on this throne, he's in majesty, he's, sur- he's in glory, he's surrounded by angels, he's in, so use your imagination of what that place might look like, and that you have complete access to that place. You can come anytime. Come. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. Come boldly. Right? If you can get that in your mind, it will change the way you relate to God, and it will change the way you pray for people, because you can go there and you bring that person before God and just say, please, Lord, have mercy on this person. Help them to see what they need to see. Help them to understand what they need to understand. So that's that's uh, background. Now we'll just continue on. Okay. So today we're looking at about seven verses uh, continuing on in, in Hebrews chapter 5. begins with, And no one can become a high priest simply because he wants such an honor. He must be called by God for this work, just as Aaron was. That is why Christ did not honor himself by assuming that he could become high priest. No, he was chosen by God who said to him, You are my son. Today I reveal you as my son. And in another passage, God said to him, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Oh boy. While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings. I guess I could click that. With a loud cry and tears, to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. And God designated him to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So we got this idea that Jesus is better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the high priest. And today we're going to talk about why Jesus is the perfect high priest, why he is absolutely the one that we want between us and the living God. So let me just pray as we begin. Jesus, I pray that you would use me to speak your life-giving word. I pray that we would have hearts that are open to receive. I pray by your spirit, Lord, you would engage our imaginations to see things we've not seen before, to understand things we've not understood before about you. Please have mercy on us, Lord. We're just fallible people. We need your power at work in us to open our hearts, to open our minds, to open our eyes and ears to see and to hear. Give us the grace, Lord God, to live the kind of lives that you have wanted us to live all along, to live that life of heaven on earth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the high priest is called by God. It says, And no one can become a high priest simply because he wants such an honor. He must be called by God for this work, just as Aaron was. Now that reference to Aaron, Aaron was the brother of Moses. This goes back to when God was first engaging with the Israelites and how they would relate to God through these priests. And Aaron was the first priest. 
So we have this idea that this office of priest, right, this role of priest, it's not something you can just say, I'll I'll just be that, right? I'm going to run for the office of priest. It's not to be sought after for honor or prestige. It's only for those who've been called by God. And in this, this is the way that God established things initially um, with Moses and with the Israelites. There would be a, a family of priests or a tribe of priests, and they would be the ones who would kind of run that interference between God and the Israelites as they tried to become his people. But if you kind of fast forward to the time of Jesus, you know, the, the office of high priest was appointed by the Roman government. Right? So it was actually no longer a chosen by God kind of a position. It was a political appointee. So just kind of put your mind into that. That's who the priest was at the time of Jesus. No longer that chosen by God, this is, who you're, this is what you're supposed to do, this is who it's supposed to be. But now it's somebody that may have an agenda. In fact, it's probably somebody that the Romans would choose that would be kind of ideal for managing this kind of uh, boisterous, rebellious bunch of Jews that would just assume the Romans would go away. Okay? That's why Christ did not honor himself by assuming he could become high priest. No, he was chosen by God who said to him, You are my son. Today I reveal you as my son. This is a quote from Psalm 2-7, if you uh, want to look it up. Some translations read, Today I have become your father, or today I have begotten you. So you'll often see that translation. Um, I'm not sure that either of those really make it easier to understand. The message, which is a paraphrase, says, Today I celebrate you. I think the point here is that in becoming a man, right, in Jesus coming from heaven to earth, taking the form of a man, he entered into a dependent relationship with God. You know, by coming and becoming a man, the relationship became a little bit different than it was in heaven in that he's now dependent on a father. It's a kind of a dependent father-son relationship. And I think for us the way to understand that is we can have that kind of a dependent relationship with Jesus as our high priest. Okay? Then we get to this uh, interesting fellow, Melchizedek. And in another passage, God said to him, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus, we learn, is a priest forever, right? He's still a priest. He's always fulfilling his priestly duties on our behalf. But he's a special kind of priest, right? He's a priest like this Melchizedek. And that's one that's uh, kind of tough to understand. If you go to Hebrews chapter 7, which we're, we're just going to take a little glimpse at it today, it, almost the entire chapter 7 talks about Melchizedek and how Jesus is like Melchizedek and who Melchizedek was. And I'm not going to go into that. I'm not going to steal Clara's thunder. I think she, she gets the straw on Melchizedek. But um, I will read just the first three verses, which will help shed some light on who this guy was. So this Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem and also a priest of God Most High. So he was a king and a priest, which is unusual. When Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. Then Abraham took a tenth of all he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of justice, and king of Salem means king of peace. There is no record of his father or mother or any, kind of his, or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. 
So I'll leave your uh, imaginations to run with that one, and I'll leave it to Clara to explain what the heck that's all about. So now we're kind of getting into the heart of the, of the passage and what I want to talk about today. So while Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. While he was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. Now, we know from the Gospels, right, from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Jesus often prayed, right? He often went away to a kind of a lonely place. He often went out early in the morning before the light was up, and he prayed. But this passage is referencing a particular prayer, right? This is referencing a time when Jesus was in what's called the Garden of Gethsemane or the Olive Grove, called Gethsemane. And uh, it comes after, it turns out, he shared the last meal with his followers, in that upper room, but before his arrest. So this is kind of at the end of Jesus' life, just before things really uh, unravel and uh, he's arrested and and then the whole crucifixion takes place. So we're going to look at um, the particular prayer in one of the gospel accounts, and I've chosen Mark for today, but you can find it in several of the gospels. I want to say, though, before we get into that, that in fact, I'll back up here. He's asking to be rescued from death. That's his prayer. He's asking to be spared the cross. That's what, that's what he's wanting as a human being, as somebody facing whatever that was that he faced in facing the cross. He's asking to be spared that. God, if I can be spared that. That's what his request is. And God heard his prayer. Don't think that God didn't hear his prayer. It says God heard his prayer because of Jesus' reverence towards God, because of his you know, attitude and posture towards God. He heard the prayer. So let's look at this passage in Mark uh, about that particular prayer. They went to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. So it was all the people that had the last meal with him in that upper room, they all went out and they went to this olive grove to pray. That's perhaps a place where Jesus often went to pray. We don't have that detail filled out here. And so he said, hey, sit down, stay here. And he took three of his closest friends with him. He took Peter, right, and he took James and John. He took Peter, James, and John with him. And then he became deeply troubled and distressed. He told them, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little further and fell to the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done and not mine. So there's a lot of things happening in this text here. This is, if I were just to kind of go with parallel stories, we have Jesus praying and entering into a kind of an agony that we've never seen him enter into before. At least there's no record of it. So he's entering into some kind of prayer, some kind of an agonizing uh, situation that he's facing, crying out to God, crying out to his Father. 
if you were a follower of Jesus and he'd always been that one that you looked up to, that one that always had the right thing to say, that one that performed miracles, now you're seeing he's starting to unravel a little bit, right? He's starting to get shaked, shooken, shaken. What's the plural of that? Anyway, he's starting to get rattled, it looks. That guy that we had all this confidence in, he's crying out in anguish. So we have that theme. We have this idea of Jesus' will, right? My will and the Father's will. And maybe those two wills are not aligned yet. Did you ever think about that, right? There's, Jesus had a will, you know, things that he wanted to do. And uh, God had maybe a different will for him, something for us to think about. We have the uh, action of his friends, right, all of his trusted friends and what they're doing. Ask them to wait and watch and pray. And, of course, they don't do very well in that department. And then we have this one friend, Judas, right? He was probably in that group that remained behind. He's now snuck off, and he's, he's ready to betray Jesus. He's out telling the authorities where they can find Jesus. So you have this betrayal theme. And then, really, what you've got here is this, this epic kind of cataclysmic clash between good and evil that exist in life, I mean, to today, right? We're seeing good and evil constantly rubbing up against, smashing into each other. And that's also going on in this scene. But what I want to zoom in on is Jesus. I want you to get into your heart and into your mind and into your feelings and into your emotions, kind of the state that Jesus was in. This will help us as we go forward says he became deeply troubled and distressed. He was coming undone. He was he was overwhelmed with sadness, overwhelmed with emotion. Right? Have you ever seen somebody go through that? Loss of a loved one or some terrible experience. He said my soul you know, I feel like my soul is being crushed to the point of death. I am under such weight that I'm being crushed. That's what it feels like. I'm being crushed. You know, I, I can't exactly relate to that. I, I can think of a couple of loved ones that have died and the feeling of loss that you have when you when you just experience it, right? You're just you just feel completely torn that this person that you loved is not going to be there anymore. And he's got this awful hour awaiting him. He's got this thing that's looming, whatever this is, right? He's facing that. He sees it somehow. He knows it's coming. He calls it this cup of suffering. So that awful hour, that cup of suffering, you know, he's going to take upon himself all the sin of all the world for all time. All the sin of all the world for all time. Think about just the crushing weight of all the wickedness of the world, all the injustice of the world, all of the sin of the world coming onto you somehow. So I'm going to just click through a few slides and I want you to react to them with your emotions so that you can get a little bit of a feel for what Jesus was facing so that you can get a little bit of empathy and a little bit of identification with what it would be like to be there 
on your knees before God, you know, crying, bawling to the point of almost blood coming out of your pores, right? It's that much anguish. It's that much agony because he's got this thing that he's facing. I hope you're in a different place. I hope you're in a place where you can just identify with how he must have felt, just a little bit of how he must have felt facing that kind of onslaught. So if we continue with the uh, Mark's account of that time in Gethsemane, then he returned and he found the disciples asleep. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them again and prayed the same prayer as before. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open, and they didn't know what to say. So he comes back, and they're they're just, they have nothing to say. When he returned to them the third time, He said, go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But no, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. So obviously Judas is arriving with uh, the guard. So Jesus is in the garden. His friends are failing him. He's in the most extreme agony that any person could be in. He's facing the worst thing that anybody could face. He's asking God to spare him. He's asking God to please, if there's some way, I don't want to go through this. That's what he's saying. Three times he makes that request of God. Not once, not twice, three times. And finally he has his answer. No. And Jesus' response, right? Yet not my will, but your will be done. So we come back to Hebrews. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. So just think about what that says. It says that even though he was God's son, he had to learn obedience. Son of God, come down to earth, has to learn obedience. Even the son of God had things that he had to learn in his lifetime. That's something for us to think about. Limiting himself in some way as a man, he had things that he had to learn. And obedience was one of the things that he had to learn. And in particular, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Well, that's kind of hard to understand. It's like, don't you learn obedience through, I don't know, discipline? or How do you learn obedience? How do you learn obedience through suffering? 
So I'm going to tell you that's not an easy one uh, to get your brain wrapped around. So hang in. I hope that by the end of uh, what I'm sharing today, I'm going to help you understand that a bit better. But before I do that, we'll just go ahead and wrap up the, the last passage here. It says, In this way God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. So by learning obedience through what he suffered, God qualified him to be the perfect high priest. And just kind of in the parentheses here, he was perfect, right? He was sinless. He was tempted, but he never sinned. And he was sacrificed. So we have this idea. The cross is the sacrifice of a perfect person in exchange for all of that sin that was coming upon him. Took the perfect offering and the shedding of blood on the cross for that to be possible. And he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. So what what if Jesus had just in the garden said, I can't do this? What if he had not obeyed? You're all saying, well, that's not possible. He, you know. But he wasn't a machine, right? He was a human being. He had to choose that. He had to choose that against his will. It was not his will. It was not his heart's desire to go through the cross. He made a decision to endure something that we can't even imagine what he endured. He made a decision as a human being to do that. What if he had decided, I'm not doing that? I'm out of here. I'm not doing that. Where would we be? What hope would we have then? Okay. Well, let's just continue on this somewhat challenging theme. So I'm going to read uh, a couple of long passages from the life of Paul and just a little bit of background. So Paul was uh, a follower of Jesus, an apostle, and he was sort of the apostle to the non-Jewish world, to the Gentiles. And the background of these passages that I'm going to read is he's having some trouble with what he calls false false apostles. These are people that were coming into the church, coming into the following of Jesus and having a different idea about Jesus, presenting a different Jesus, presenting a different spirit, presenting a different gospel. So he says, Are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him far more. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers, but are not. I have worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights, I've been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then, besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak without me feeling that weakness? Who is led astray that I do not burn with anger? Well, there's a life, right? 
a little hard to relate to perhaps, but I mean, that's he's one of these guys we look up to in the Bible, the Apostle Paul. He got all this great teaching, all these great ideas. There's his life, all right? And I would say he kind of got the crap knocked out of him most of his life. That's what it meant to be a follower of Jesus for him. We continue. Well, if I wanted to boast, I would be no fool in doing so because I would be telling the truth, but I won't do it because I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life or hear in my message, even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God. So to keep me from being becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan, to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So think about Paul. I mean, his life was not an easy life. His decision to follow Jesus and his decision to be out there sharing good news about Jesus cost him tremendously, ultimately cost him his life. And he suffered all kinds of things that I think if we'd suffered, you know, one or two of those things, we'd say, A, we'd be probably bragging about it, and B, we'd say, I'm probably not going to do that anymore, you know. It's too dangerous, it's impractical, it's whatever. But it's not enough that he went through all of that hardship, right? It's not enough that he went through all of those trials, all of those tribulations, all of that abuse, all of that loneliness. But he gets a little tormentor, a little thorn in his flesh to boot, right? So all along the way, in case you were thinking that somehow God is good, let me just remind you about how God has put you in this place where you're hungry, where you got no food, where you're cold, where nobody cares about you, where everybody is aligned against you. He gets a little tormentor to tag along with him the whole time. This spiritual being, right, this thing from Satan somehow, whatever this thorn in the side is, says a messenger from Satan to tag along, remind him in case he gets, you know, to feeling good. So he prays, Lord, right, I beg you, please take it away. Praise that three times. Please take it away. Now, you'd think that wouldn't be an unreasonable request. Right? This little demonic thing that is tormenting me. Is my life not enough already? And three times God tells him, no. My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So like Jesus, right, Paul learned obedience through what he suffered. Maybe that helps make it a little bit clearer. So I was trying to think about how, how, how can we take this kind of concept that's maybe above us and beyond us and break it down to a level that we can relate to. Because we're not Jesus, right? I mean, we say he's a man, but we're thinking, well, he's a special man and he had special abilities. And somehow we give him a, a pass there in terms of what he faced. And we're not Paul. Paul was some kind of crazy guy, right? He was just some kind of, you know, discipline beyond, you know, imagination kind of guy. So we're not that guy. 
you know, we're just regular old people, right? We're just trying to kind of get along in life here, just trying to deal with the problems as they come up. So what does this have to do with us? So I thought about, you know, examples. Um, Cindy and I, about a little over 20 years ago, had this very clear sense that we were supposed to adopt. And, you know, actually it had probably gone on for a long time and finally got came to a head that, you know, it's clear we are supposed to adopt. And in uh, 1993, we adopted a little girl from Colombia. She was four and a half. In 95, we adopted a little boy from Guatemala. He was three and a half. And then two years later, we thought we were done, we adopted a 14-year-old girl from Guatemala. So kind of three in rapid succession. And, you know, in obedience to God. And about a decade later, about a decade ago, um, was at a time when we also had two foster girls living with us, two sisters. But I would say that the, the wheels came off, right? Things unraveled. And we we experienced in our family, you know, things that pretty much brought me to my knees. Things that I never would have hoped for, never wished for, would never want to have to go through. And, you know, we were obedient to God, right? I mean, we're doing this thing that we're supposed to do. We felt we were called to do it. And then the wheels come off. And I won't go into details about that, but it was about as bad as, you know, here's a guy that grew up in an alcoholic family that was sort of chaotic and who loves to have life in order and in control and predictable and just not insane. And I have insanity going on. I have the police at the door. I have hospitalizations. I have all kinds of things happening that, I mean, I'm, done, I'm undone. I'm not prepared for that. I can't deal with that. But we got through it, and, you know, there was obedience and there was suffering. And I was changed as a result of it. I can look at some of that. I can see some of it. But there's an awful lot that I can't quite picture what that was all about and how that was a particularly good thing. So maybe God is asking you to hang in with a marriage that's struggling. And it's going to mean some suffering on your part to do that. Maybe he's asking you to stay in school, and you know it's going to be incredibly hard to do it. It's a stretch in financial ways, in academic ways. You're going to suffer some to obey. Maybe he's calling you to full-time ministry, and you know you're going to suffer for it. You're certainly going to suffer financially, right? You're suddenly dependent on other people's willingness to give. You're probably going to be spiritually opposed. You're probably going to take on to your life some spiritual opposition because you've decided to give your life fully. So in all of these examples, the question for all of you and for me is, am I willing to obey? Are you willing to obey no matter the cost? That's the question. Are you willing to obey no matter the cost? So I was going through the Psalms one day, and I I stumbled across this psalm, and I thought, found it comforting. So you keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You've recorded each one in your book. So at least we know that God is aware of our tears, right? He actually collects them somehow, stores them up in a bottle, records them in his book. And if you read in Revelations, it says, When he took the scroll... The four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. So this is the Lamb taking the scroll. This is referring to Jesus. 
Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words, You are worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So our prayers, our tears, right, they matter to God. Our prayers are like incense, right? It's like this fragrant aroma in God's nostrils. And he cares deeply about what we go through, the pain that we go through, the struggles that we go through, the tears that we weep, right, the feelings that we have of things being out of control and bigger than us and beyond us. So with all that said, we're told, let's come boldly before the throne of grace. And to Jesus, our great high priest. So what I want to say is Jesus is fully qualified to be our high priest before the awesome God of all creation, before the God who created everything that exists. He is the one who is fully qualified to be there between us and that God. And though he wanted to avoid it, he suffered the cross in obedience to the Father. He bore in his body all the wickedness of all humanity for all time. He faced the worst suffering any human being could face. Anything that we might face, what he faced was far worse than that. But he didn't shrink, right? In the end, he said, I'll do it. He didn't want to. But where would we be if he hadn't done that? Where would he be if he hadn't endured his sufferings and the crucifixion? And where would the non-Jewish world be? Where would the church be if Paul hadn't endured all of his sufferings so that he could explain more about who Jesus is and what he's done? Where would the adopted child be if the parents hadn't listened to God's call? and endure the sufferings that came with obedience. Where would the marriage be if the faithful spouse had not hung in even in the face of great suffering? Are you willing to love your enemies? Are you willing to pray for those who cause trouble in your life? Are you willing to endure that kind of suffering? So the call of God on our lives is not going to necessarily be an easy road. In fact, I'm going to say it's probably going to be uh, involve some suffering. If we're obedient to God, if we're truly giving ourselves to him, we should not be surprised when we face suffering. And, you know, I think this side of heaven, we may not fully understand why. We, we won't see what the impact of that suffering was. I mean, I have a little bit of consolation, a little bit of a picture of, you know, the other side of the suffering that we endured in the adoption. But its full ramifications, the full impact that it's going to have forever, I don't see it. And, you know, sometimes I think we're going to get to that point where we just say, well, what was the point of that, right? What, what was the point, God? How did that serve any good purpose that I had to go through that? We may have those kind of questions. All I can say is take heart. Jesus has gone before us, right? Everything we face He's already faced. He's fully qualified to be our high priest. So let's go to that place 
before his throne of grace. There we will receive mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Or you can pray what Paul prayed. You know, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So when we come to the throne of grace, we come to Jesus. Right? We come before him. And that's, if you get anything out of this whole study of Hebrews, it's that Jesus is the center. Jesus is the one that we really need to understand, the one we really need to be coming before, the one we really need to grasp and hang on to no matter what happens. So what I'd like you to do now to the extent that you feel comfortable is just I'm going to read a passage out of Colossians. Just close your eyes if, you, if you're comfortable and use your imagination to understand in your mind, to picture in your mind, what do these words say? It's from Colossians 1. It's verses 15 to 22. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. You and I were created for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He's the beginning, supreme over all who will rise from the dead. So he's first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence. And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Let's pray. We gratefully come before your throne of grace. It's hard to believe, but we stand here holy and blameless before you without a single fault. By the power of your indwelling Holy Spirit, help us to understand who we are in you. Have mercy on us. Open our eyes to see ourselves clearly. Open our eyes to see who you truly are. Cause us to run to you, to cling to you, to bring ourselves every day before your throne of grace. Let this be a holy habit for our lives. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for grace, sufficient grace. And as we remain here in this place, Lord, please speak to us about anything you want us to understand about you or about ourselves or about someone else. So just take a minute and listen before him.
Amen. So as you were listening there, if you heard, if you heard something, if something came to mind, if a, an impression, a word about yourself, about God, about someone else, if it came, if it happened, you know, grab somebody. Grab one of the folks up front here and tell them about it and pray about it. Because God's speaking, right? He desires to speak to us. He wants us to understand who he is, and he wants us to understand what he's doing in us. And with that, we're dismissed. Thank you.